I've wanted to revisit the question of how consumers get help with their financial planning because, well, this remains a critical issue. A dysfunction in the UK is really quite a sophisticated and highly evolved retail financial system. And we've got significant disruptions coming down the tracks from the FCA. So I got my colleague Mike Barrett and Chet Villaney of EV to help me take a look at where we're at. We are recording. So Mike Barrett, welcome back again. And Chet Villaney, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, Mike. Good to speak with you guys. Thank you both very much for coming. So look, I'm going to start with you, Mike because you've written a report about the advice gap, which was surprisingly well-received uh, <laughs> and actually was, uh, I mean, I'm saying this on the record, which is kind of obviously something I'm going to regret, but it was actually really good and there was a lot of really good stuff in there. I think it's just a really good place to start. Can you just talk us through some of the kind of headline findings you found about the state of the advice sector? And I'm just, just thinking in terms of, you know, we've got FCA initiatives looming, both a review of the retirement advice and then a more profound, more fundamental review of the advice guidance boundary generally. So there's a lot up for grabs yeah. at the moment. And into the middle of that, turns up Mike with his report. So what, 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 what can you tell us, Mike? Yeah, so I think taking taking a step back the advice gap has always been a, a subject which i've been interested in which we've been interested in uh, at the Lancat. and there's a mixture of kind of altruistic anyone who works in the advice sector for, a, for the length of time that we have you can see that the, the impact that sensible financial planning financial advice can have on people's lives and particularly over the long term when you yeah you've been around for as long as I have you can yeah you start to kind of take some of your own medicine almost and again you can see the impact that has on, on people's lives and you naturally want the world to be a better place and want more people to be able to, to access advice but I think also we, there's a kind of a harder reality check commercial edge to that where as much as we would like everyone to be able to afford to take financial advice and have no financial issues whatsoever, that's not something we're going to easily solve in, in the space of a podcast or the space of a few hours or whatever it is. The bit which I think is really stark in the work which we've done on the advice gap is that there are, to use a horrible consulting phrase, there are addressable value pools there. There are segments of the market who would pay for advice and could afford to pay for advice but for a number of reasons, they're not doing so. So that is a large part of what the advice gap study is about. And as you said, the, the kind of the headline figures, just to, to rattle them off, 11% of the UK population have paid for advice in some shape or form in the last two years. And that's all versions of, of paid advice. So that might cover mortgage protection advice as well as the investment, financial planning, pensions advice that we, we probably know a little bit more within within our world. Around about 60% of that 11% are getting ongoing advice as, as, as well. So that's probably kind of more more about the the financial planning sector rather than necessarily mortgage brokers, that, that, that type of thing. So the research we did not only looked at the consumer research for those who have paid for advice, we looked in, in detail at obviously those who haven't paid for advice, but we also did conduct some research with our advisor panel through the Landcat to look at the types of advisors, uh, the, the types of clients rather, which are a typical financial advice firm might be serving. And yeah, loads and loads of stuff which we can talk 
at great length as this podcast proceeds. So I was really struck one stat, and you were remarkably restrained with your statistics there, so thank you. But mean average client age for traditional advice firms, it's 59. Now, I'm not disputing the fact that people around the age of 59, I'm not so very far away from that myself, might need benefit from financial advice. But there's a lot of people younger than that who perhaps should be getting some financial advice for different stages of their lives and who apparently mostly aren't. And I think that's that's really interesting. And and you know, you, you found over three million people would pay for, for advice were it not for the fact that basically they don't trust the industry. And you know, trust came through very clearly in your research. Yeah. And I think to pick up on something you said there, it's it's not so much the industry as in financial services generally, which I think most people realise has a pretty poor rep, but sadly financial advisors are trusted even less than than, than financial services on, on average. And this is this is the addressable market here. As you said, three point one million people are saying we would pay for advice, but we don't trust financial advisors. And they've got the means to pay for advice. They're kind of in the target market, but the reputation of advisors, the kind of the sins of the past, certainly kind of pre-RDR stuff, is still is still out there. And the majority of the population hasn't experienced or hasn't got any kind of what's the word I'm looking for? Any perception really of the of the transformation which the advice sector has gone through since since RDR. It's 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 much more of a perception gap, I think, is the real issue there rather than necessarily just a pure who can afford to take advice and who can't. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Though if it's any consolation to the generality of sort of financial advisors and wealth managers out there, I was just an equity release conference earlier this week and they are probably even less popular than most financial advisors and again (laughs) i think that's pretty harsh because as again as you found in your research 88 percent of people who took advice believe it represented good value for money and maybe they just don't understand the, the the poor deal they've got but i don't think that is the case i think in the majority of cases people have received advice and it's been beneficial to them, and they feel it has been good value for money. But the other 90% of the population who haven't taken advice don't know that. Yeah, you, you don't know what you don't know. And, and particularly the when you start to break down the trust barrier, there's loads of kind of evidence through research and separate research that particularly these days people want to do, feel like they, they'll do an element of their own research, but that tends to be starting to kind of validate decisions which – you've kind of already made and yeah i'm gonna google tom mcphail to make sure that he's a good guy I'm not sure when i find out i'll find out <laughs> the moment what, I, what i get when i google tom mcphail but but also the, the trust barrier the most popular way for individuals to start to break that down is to get a referral get a recommendation from friends and family sometimes from from a from another organization so a professional connection solicitor referral that type of thing and again, that kind of that perception gap, that the difference between those who aren't and aren't taking advice, those who are taking advice tend to come in, a greater proportion of them come in on referrals. So they've got somebody in their friends and family network who can recommend a good advisor. Those who don't, as we just said, don't trust advisors. So they haven't got somebody in that network who can recommend a, a good advisor. And it starts to become harder and harder to find, yeah, where, where do you go to find somebody who you can trust and particularly who you can trust with some potentially very, very complex 
financial decisions, which, again, separate research shows that the, the level of financial literacy across the population is probably not where it should be as well. So I will come on to EV in a moment and the kind of work they've been doing around this space, which is one possible answer to this. But just picking up on that point there, Mike, do you think the industry could do more? You know, you talked about referrals. Are, are we just, I mean, because this is, this is kind of chapter one of being a good financial advisor. If you've got a happy client, you know, ask them to tell their friends. Do you, do you think the industry is not doing that well enough? I think there's, a, again, a bit of a kind of a reality check within the financial advisor space, starting with, with advisors. So the most advisors I know do encourage referrals. Some of them lean into that quite heavily and spend a lot of time doing it. But also, most advice firms I know are not really struggling to, to find new clients. And in some cases, they're actively looking to kind of slow down. You, yeah, we've got enough clients. We've got, we're happy with our lot. And the advice sector is so dominated by small, in some cases, very small firms as well. Then there's kind of a little bit perhaps of a, of a capacity question there. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a constraint because these are successful businesses and they're running a successful business. They're not paid to to solve the advice gap. I think providers need to play an increasing role around all of this. So actually, the the product providers, I think there is a real, yeah, again, hard commercial terms. You can see there is a business case if you invest money on promoting the advice sector, working with the trade bodies, getting this message across that, do you know what, Chartered Financial Planner is now a extremely qualified to a level above degree level and b the only way they exist they get paid is if they consistently demonstrate trust to their consumers Mm. because commission has been banned for a decade by now and you can turn off advice fees by signing a letter in most cases so they can be trusted and they are professional i think providers and trade bodies pay need to play a big role around all of that and I think also on the provider side, my my other favourite subject, consumer duty, comes in where that sets out a framework of how the regulator expects all firms to behave. And over the last few years, I think this, this trust issue, I think when you break it down as well, it's quite often the advisor who gets blamed when things go wrong, despite it being the, ultimately the provider's fault. So the stuff we've talked about at length about pension transfers, lack of technology being adopted in firms, et cetera, et cetera. As I said, the advisor tends to have to front that up to the client and take it on the chin on behalf of the provider. And providers need to stop making advisors look stupid, I think, in front of their their clients would be would be my message around this. Do you, do you think there's a role there's more of a role for the trade bodies in that? Yeah, I think there is. I think the certainly the trade bodies championing the value of advice, promoting the sector. There's there's obviously quite a lot of internal politics happening in a, in a number of the trade bodies at the moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, the research, as I said, it shows that when when we are we asked the question of what words come into your mind when you hear the word financial advice. And there was some positive stuff around there because we included the people who have paid for advice. But there were words such as scam, untrustworthy, commission, sales product flocking and it yeah it felt like being transported yeah 14 years back to through the pre-rbr days yeah i was i was really i was talking to uh, toby bentley financial advisor earlier this week and he made the point to me that talking about older clients people who are 
drawing down on their retirement savings, which is one of the areas where people typically do need more advice because it's more complicated and they're more vulnerable and costs of getting it wrong can be higher. And he made the point that where that individual dies and their wealth gets passed on to to their family members, in 60% of cases, those family members then move to a different financial advisor. And that sounded to me like a massive missed opportunity and that I know good advisors will already be engaging younger members of the family where they have permission from the client to do that, to, to help with, you know, I mean, to have powers of attorney, for example, is a really important step for, for when the client starts to lose capacity, as can happen. But if you get that relationship right, when the money, when the inheritances do pass down, the next generation already are very happy to carry on working with you, and then you don't lose the client. And his take on this was, well, if 60% of people are moving financial advisors at that point, that would suggest the financial advisors are, are missing a trick somehow in that relationship. Yeah, I think so. And I think one, one of the other things I've been doing over recent weeks around the advice gap work has been being out on the road talking with advisors around consumer duty and value for money. And this this is part of the challenge, I think, obviously, Consumer duty requires all firms to ensure that their services are priced and deliver good value, but evidencing that on on an ongoing basis. And there's lots of activities. There's a number of activities that an advice firm can typically do with a client where they'll be able to quantify that value. So tax planning, estate planning, if you say somebody passing away, this is what we've saved you in tax, you've sold a business, et cetera, et cetera. And, that's, and as I said, that, that's relatively easy to put. You can see how someone's value for money assessment would say, yeah, we've charged you £1,000 in fees, Mr. McPhail, but we saved you £20,000 in tax. Mm. Therefore, we are delivering exceptional value for money. But it's the years where not, none of those life events happen, where actually, yeah, we've charged you £1,000, Mr. McPhail, but nothing's happened. We've had a light life. hand on the tiller and nothing has yeah, happened. Great, yeah, great news. You've had no horrible life events. You haven't need to have, speak to your financial advisor. You've had peace of mind. You've been able to go on holiday and sit on the beach and think, yep, life is good. And that, from the, from a client's point of view, is probably as valuable, if not more valuable, than some of the, the more transactional elements. And it's about getting that. That's part of what I think the the perception gap we talked about is that this is this is what the value of advice actually gives you. It's not just I'm going to save money or I'm going to get additional investment growth. It, it's longer term kind of deferred gratification in all cases exercise. And that message alongside the professionalism and the, the trust that the sector now can can deservedly get from consumers. That's the bit which the trade bodies, I think, haven't managed to get that message externally. Okay, so you highlighted the fact that it's not the advisor's job to go chasing customers. You know, in a lot of cases, they're actually the, the order book is full. They've got a good bank of clients. They're happy servicing them, and in particular, they don't need to go chasing further down market in terms of wealth. And so, people with less money to spend very often don't get access to advisors because the advisors really aren't that bothered about dealing with them. I'm paraphrasing, but I think that was kind of implicit in what you're saying. I've been struck looking at retirement income transactions where around half of annuities are bought without either advice or pension-wise guidance. So that's not even non-paid-for advice. Around half of annuities get sold without any form of guidance. Around a third of drawdown transactions, the same story, no advice or guidance from pension-wise. And where people just cash out their pot, which is what the majority of people do still, that is the single most common way of 
drawing on your pension. It's just to take it all out in one go. Nearly two-thirds of people, again, take no advice or guidance. And when we look at drawdown, for all pot sizes below a quarter of a million pounds, the commonest rate of income withdrawal is over 8% a year. And that's a big, you know, there's a big red light flashing there for me because that doesn't yeah. look sustainable to me. So, you know, we need to find ways to make access to guidance and advice and help and better decision making more widely available to the masses. And I think this is the moment to bring Chet in, who's been sitting there patiently waiting to listening to, to you and me talking. I hope he's still there. Are you still there, Chet? Yeah, I've, I've, I've enjoyed uh, hearing both you and, and Mike get me up to speak, actually. And some interesting views. I think the first thing I will say is that the paper from from Milanka is actually quite fantastic. And I'd definitely suggest or recommend if anyone hasn't seen it or read it, please do so. Because I think it has a nice angle from both a consumer side and from the perspective of an advisor as well. So uh, do go and take a look at that if, if you haven't already. Some good points made by Mike there, which I which I completely agree with. I mean, if we just kind of take a step back and we think about how individuals today can get support when it comes to financial planning. We've spoken about traditional advice quite extensively there. So we know it works extremely well for those who are fortunate enough to obtain it. Advisors, you know, overall do a fantastic job in supporting individuals. And I think that's been in particular quite critical over the last few years where we've seen a huge amount of market volatility and the levels of inflation. And and as, you know, the stat from the Lancat report where 88% 88% of those who received advice believe it represents good value for money. And a, there was a recent report from Open Money a couple of years back where circa 90% of those who re- received advice would go and get advice again. So we generally know traditional advice ex- works extremely well. It can cover a number of need areas, cover holistic advice, which would be pretty much impossible for a lot of individuals to compute otherwise. But it is limited to individuals who are quite wealthy who can kind of justify to afford to pay or, or have sufficient assets to kind of, you know, get across the threshold to get advice from an advisor perspective. But, you know, it, it was mentioned just there, there, there's a real question on the capacity of, of the advisor side as well. We've got, I think, 50% of advisors who currently are over 50, and, and there's a real question on whether we're getting enough younger advisors coming through the system. And then when you combine that with the fact that we've got rising costs for advisors and advisor businesses, so post-RDR, the removal of commission and fees that have come, come along, which, you know, was a positive move for the industry. Nobody can doubt that. We've got increasing insurance costs. And I actually saw an interesting survey just the other day from the Embark Group where they looked at a sample of 500 advisors and two-thirds of those were looking to increase fees due to consumer duty. And actually around 84% of those have already increased the minimum threshold which now sits at just under £100,000. So so advice is getting further out of reach. Yeah, I mean, that's what the signs suggest. So, you know, something has to be done. And, and there's a real challenge for us as an industry here because, you know, there's a real question of, you know, currently, as as Mike says, you know, most, most advisor firms aren't struggling for customers. You're always going to have a bank of wealthy individuals who can afford to pay for advice but it does feel as if it's becoming a little bit more out of reach for individuals from what we're seeing at least. Uh, but that's one route, you know, you've got traditional advice that's out there. The other one that's always been out there is the kind of guidance and education side, which is aimed at the wider audience. And it can work well for, for a few individuals where they have non-complex needs 
Um, when we talk about guidance for education, what, what we're really saying is an individual gets access to some level of content or some, some modeling solutions where they can enter their details or some details are data loaded in and they'll get to play around with some of the factors. So at a basic level, you might have some sort of investment tool where you say, I want to contribute £100 a month for a period of five years. And what does it look like, basically, in five years' time? And, and the tool will tell you what it's worth. You can play about with some of the parameters. But ultimately, there's no advice there. The individual goes through the process. They make the decision on what's right for them. There isn't any personal recommendation. And although it can be useful, it's really down to the individual to kind of walk away with a, a solution or, or an outcome that's, that's right for them. And it can work well for some of the simpler areas. So, for example, simple protection assessments or simple investment cases or perhaps even the accumulation stage of retirement. But it's a little bit more challenging for, for a guidance solution to help individuals when it comes to you know, some of the more complex areas like at retirement, because you've got essentially lots of factors when it gets to drawdown, sequencing risk, investment risk, longevity risk. There's so much for individuals to compute and without advice it's really, really difficult to make a, a sensible decision. But ultimately, those are the two key ways right now that individuals, or traditionally at least, individuals have been able to get support. But um, worry not, because we have started to see a, a new way of supporting individuals come through. And, and from EV's perspective, you know, we support clients in the advice space with advisor tools around risk suitability protection, investment, retirement planning, et cetera, et cetera. And around 25% of the advisor market has access to our risk suitability solutions. And we also support around well, 3 million individuals in the UK have access to our modelling capabilities too. Uh, so we've got a lot of experience in supporting individuals via the traditional advice and the guidance channel. But I think more so in recent years, we've seen this exciting development around digital and hybrid advice, which in some ways will help us plug the gap between traditional advice and guidance and offer more of a mass market advice proposition but it is important not to confuse this with with robo advice because we we often hear the term robo advice banded around uh, and it's sometimes is interchangeably with digital and hybrid advice but here we're, what we're talking about is an advice process where the personal recommendation and the suitability, suitability report can be automated and generated by algorithms and then what you have is varying use of advisors and support staff to support that process. And the real aim is to reduce the cost of advice. So I was really struck in, in Mike's paper where he did look at robo-advice. And there was even more of a trust gap there for, for robo-advice. So, I mean, that would play into the argument that, yeah, you can use the AI, you can use the tools, you can create efficiencies but in the end, quite often what people want is a human being delivering the outputs, delivering the answers. Is that fair? It's a great point. And I think this is something that we're going to have to tackle from a digital and hybrid perspective. Um, I think the other point with digital and hybrid is there isn't a single type of solution to implement out there. And it will really depend on the type of firm. So, for example, some firms who are specifically focused on the advisor channel may look at how to automate more of the process and the journey. So this isn't replacing the advisor. The real question we have here is how can we drive better productivity and use technology to kind of automate some of the elements where you don't need to use expensive human involvement. You don't need support stuff. You don't need advisors. 
that might be around some of the fact find or collection of objectives, for example, and the advisor or, or the support staff are involved in other areas where they add value. So this isn't necessarily about looking at a traditional advice process and completely ripping it up. There might be a, a step change where we look at how to use more technology. Now that, that might be from you know an advisor perspective. But what we are also seeing, interestingly, is some firms who have a multi-channel proposition already, so they might have something in the workplace or direct-to-consumer side, and they may also have a advisor channel or offering. What they're looking to do is to use a, a combination of digital and hybrid to support that, to build a more comprehensive journey, which really provides choice for an individual on how they want support. And actually, it was quite interesting because at last week's Lancat event, we, we heard from both um, Aviva and MNG Wealth, who, mm. who really spoke about deploying a hybrid and digital proposition, which accompanies existing services and channels rather than building out this separate channel okay. in isolation. So given that the, the typical financial advisor is, is, you know, the kind of clients they want are clients who are going to pay four-figure sums a year for their services. That's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm deliberately framing it quite broadly because it does vary quite a lot. But advisors can't really effectively service clients who are only going to be worth a few hundred quid a year to them. Shoot me down if you think differently on that, but that's certainly my my starting point on that. I mean, it's it's I guess it's what's on the other side of the business code if you're writing there in terms of the costs. And as Chair says, the 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 technology is there to help bring the cost of delivering that down, particularly delivering it at scale down to that type of level potentially. But then the other part of that equation is kind of the the regulatory costs, the business costs of, yep. of delivering that as well. So in terms of, I guess, the, the conclusions and the, the recommendations that are coming out of the report, we talked about what the advice sector perhaps need to do. We talked about what providers should and shouldn't be doing to support the advice sector. The, the third area is, is obviously the regulator and in particular the, the, the imminent review of the advice guidance boundary. Again, I think that, as, as was mentioned a moment ago, the technology it's there to help people make relatively less complex, simple financial decisions in a sensible, structured manner and make the right decision at the end of it. That feels like that's the easy part of it, really. But the critical bit of it is whether we're using EVs technology or other solutions that we find a way with that regulatory accommodation to deliver meaningful, helpful guidance, whether it's deemed to be guidance or advice whether that's done by a robot or, or this kind of hybrid approach that Chet was talking about there, that that is delivered in a way where you know, the masses out there, not the 10% who currently pay for advice, the, the other 90% of the population feel that they can pay a sum of, what, low hundreds of pounds and, and get the outcomes they're looking for. Now, is that, is that achievable over the, over, both through using the technology that is evolve, emerging now and through regulatory reform. Can, can we get to that point? I, I do think it's challenging. And it's challenging, not least, because if you look back at some of the previous work the FCA have done around this, there's this real kind of confusion of actually what is advice and what is guidance. And in some cases, alarmingly, consumers actually start to transpose those where they would feel that guidance 
is is a higher bar than, than advice. If, if someone's advising you to do something, it's just kind of, yeah, Mike, sort yourself out. Whereas guidance is, no, Mike, sort yourself out by eating less, going on and exercising more and all the rest of that. It's more, it's more personalized and closer to a personal recommendation. And, that, and that's before you get anywhere near kind of the real regulatory complexities and what advice, what the providers perhaps want to be on the hook for. So it's a really, really challenging piece of work. It's a really important piece of work. And I can see why the FCA are starting to kind of put flags up to say, this is quite challenging. It's going to take a bit of time. But I, I go back to this commercial reality. I go back to this business case, which we're starting to construct here. If on the the risks and issues log, you've got imminent regulatory change, which is potentially going to significantly change the landscape of this in the next three to five years, then that makes it quite challenging for you to commit to spending significant investing to do something when you know that this, there's this shifting landscape coming around. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people are going to kind of sit on the, on the sidelines and wait to see what happens with that before actually doing anything to to address the, the, the advice gap and these consumers who have different needs. And meanwhile, cost of living crisis, consumer duty, all of this other stuff is going on and it's not it's not getting any easier out there. Chet, give me some optimistic. I'm feeling a bit down now. Go on, I, tell, I, tell me it's going to work. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if it's um, me waking up with a bit of good nights to sleep. I, I certainly feel a little bit more optimistic. And maybe it's because, you know, as a firm, we're starting to see lots more RFIs and, and opportunities come through where the clients are starting to look at digital and hybrid advice. I think there's always a commercial perspective when you look at all of this. As I said, if you're an advisor firm solely focusing from an advisor channel perspective, what digital and hybrid does do is it gives you a great opportunity to provide consistency of advice, which is great from a compliance perspective. And it does give you an, you know, an opportunity to build some of that consumer side to bring through the next generation of, of, of clients coming through and reduce the cost. So I think that's that's a real benefit there. I think the other side is if you're a product provider of some sort or if you're a workplace provider of pension schemes or if you're a bank or building society, there's a mass number of individuals or, or customers that are there that aren't currently receiving advice. And, you know, we've seen firms like Nutmeg come along with mm. high levels of acquisition costs and the business model. And very low levels up. of profitability. Yeah, because it just doesn't stack up. You know, it's, it's cost of almost, I don't know what the exact figure is, but hundreds to get people on board. And then the payback takes a number of years. Whereas if you're a, a bank or building society, for example, so, you know, I log into my banking app and the number of times I get a, you know, some sort of pop-up around loans or mortgages or whatever, you know, th there's a massive opportunity here for those banks, those product providers and workplaces who have customers, who have eyes on screens, to, to perhaps build out a solution which does give advice on a mass scale. And you still have advisors sitting there behind the scenes. And, and yes, you know, it, it can cost quite a lot of money to build some of these solutions, but technology has improve so much to so many providers out there that have productized offerings that are available and that's something that we've started to really invest heavily in and we have done so over the last few years and i think over the next five years we will see even more evolution we've seen evolution with isa and gia journeys when it comes to digital and hybrid advice but you would argue that those aren't really the areas where you're going to get a lot of commercial payback to be completely honest but we've also seen some journeys around at retirement, which is probably the biggest need area 
for the mass market right now and it'll continue to be a big area especially post pension freedoms where people have all of these dc pots auto enrollment a lack of db pots and all of a sudden this complex decision at the point of retirement where they need help to try and avoid things like eight percent withdrawals or cashing out their pension pots so there's a massive opportunity there and you know for especially for for those who have customers or who have access to the customer's eyes, there's a huge opportunity from a commercial perspective. So they win and consumers win because they should get access to some level of support and advice to help make better decisions. Thank you for that. So it's about, so the industry needs to take the solutions to the customers rather than trying to use marketing to bring the customers to the solution. Yeah, and, and there's always going to be an element of both. But but I think we have a lot more control than we, we might think. But, you know, I, I think Mike is absolutely right. There's a lot going on at the moment. I think consumer duty has left a huge number of question marks up in the air. And that may make some firms just sit and wait. We've seen a, um, a couple of big providers in, in Vanguard and Coulter decide to do a slight U-turn on their proposition offering when it comes to digital and hybrid. But we're also seeing a lot more opportunities come through and, and you can't ignore that. I think there is an element of speed to market. No solution is going to be perfect, but uh, you want to get the competitive advantage when it comes to implementing you know a solution out there so it will happen i'm sure it will and i think it's something the fca are trying to encourage as well to be fair with their sandbox initiative so yeah i think it's a lot more promising um, and there's lots more opportunity out there and we will see a, a huge shift um, over the next five to ten years when it comes to digital and hybrid because we're starting to see some of it being implemented now Nice. All right. Well, look, we've got the retirement advice and equity release review. We've got the advice guidance boundary review, thematic review kicking off. Um, and we've got consumer duty landing uh, in the next couple of months. So this is no doubt something we're going to be returning to. I like the fact that you you managed to take it into more optimistic territory, Chet. So so let's let's stop there. Thanks both very much for, for talking to us today. Cheers, guys. Cheers, guys. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that, and I'm sorry you had to listen to us saying nice things about Mike's work. This is a subject we'll definitely be revisiting over the months to come as the FCA's consultations come through. 